Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Now, regular listeners to the program know that we've begun a new series, the Ministry Watch Extra episodes. I'm continuing to do our regular Friday weekly roundups. Those are the episodes that I co-host with Natasha Smith. But these Ministry Watch Extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep, you might say, with some of our editorial partners. And today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program, Paul Gladder. Paul is the editor-in-chief at Religion Unplugged, and he's the director of the journalism program at the King's College in New York City. His journalism experience includes a long tenure with the Wall Street Journal. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Warren. You bet. Well, one of the biggest stories in the news since the last time you and I spoke was the nomination uh, of and the hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, you published an article by Bobby Ross that I thought was particularly inter- interesting. In it, uh, Bobby said that the Democrats are avoiding the dogma. Uh, can you say more about that? Right. Yeah. In Bobby's column, he pointed out that uh, Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's faith, you know, was a big focus going into the Senate Judicial Committee hearings. We saw a lot of stories about her faith ahead of the hearings because there was history there. Um, And a lot of journalists replayed Senator Dianne Feinstein's uh, infamous assessment earlier when Barrett was up for uh, an earlier judicial nomination. And when when Senator Feinstein said to Barrett, dogma lives loudly within you. And that caused a lot of backlash. Um, And so uh, what was interesting though, in Bobby's column, he pointed out that while while we journalists uh, thought that was going to be a big topic during the hearings. It didn't come up so much from the Democrats. Uh, they didn't want to be seen as unfriendly to religious ple- people so close to the election. And they really didn't dig into her Catholicism the way I think we thought they would, right? Right. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting as well. And, you know, of course, as a person of faith, I have to say that um, I guess that was a positive development. But I was also struck by the fact that she was forced to say repeatedly, usually in response to softball questions from Republicans and not hardball questions from Democrats, that her faith would play no role in her decision making. And I found that, Paul, and I'm wondering what your reaction is. uh, It seemed pretty ironic to me that the Republicans were quick to downplay one of the things about her, in fact, I would say a core thing about her, her faith, that made her the kind of person that the Republicans actually liked. Uh, Well, maybe, you know, it could be that the Republicans were trying to bait their Democratic counterparts into into going after that issue for all the reasons we mentioned, for political reasons. Um, but it, it's also interesting to me that uh, we had an earlier piece on Religion Unplugged by Clemente Lisi, one of our writers who uh, knows Catholicism very well. And he pointed out that uh, the Supreme Court before this current nomination was made up of uh, six ca- justices who identify as Catholic and three who identify as Jewish uh, heritage or faith. And so this would bring it actually to seven of the Supreme Court nominees who identify as Catholic and uh, that's interesting. I mean, I think it could have been or should have been, like you say, something that the court, uh, the uh, uh, committee in Congress should have talked about, it, perhaps. And um, Bill Maher, for example, the comedian, went after this point, saying, you know, uh, 
uh, Catholics are a smaller percentage of American population dramatically than how they're represented on the court. And of course, he didn't like that. So yeah, it's puzzling why the Democrats didn't uh, didn't delve into that more. Yeah, it is. I, you know, I, I've often thought about this uh, whole issue of Catholics on the court, especially, and, and also a lot of Catholics have a, a very strong presence in places like the Federalist Society or the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, for example. And I think it may be, and of course, this may go, uh, Paul, far afield for what we want to talk about here. But, um, you know, the Catholics have a very strong tradition of natural law and uh, Catholic social teaching, which is, uh, you know, which doesn't really shy away from this uh, frontier that exists between religion and ethics and politics. Uh, the Catholic social teaching kind of takes that discipline pretty seriously. And Protestants really don't have that kind of a tradition, it seems to me. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And also, when you think about it, um, I, th- yeah, I think Jewish and Catholic traditions both maybe emphasize textual analysis and uh, uh, in their traditions differently than, than other faith traditions. Certainly, Catholics have encyclicals that come out from the Pope, or they have a thousand years of documents that uh, anchor and guide their faith and that interpret their faith. So, and, and certainly Jewish faith has similar, you know, ancient texts and you know, maybe in the Protestant tradition, there is certainly the text of the Bible, but there is also maybe a different or, or less uh, anchored system. And so I, I kind of think about this and wonder about this is, are, do, do, do Catholic and Jewish uh, uh, lawyers and judges excel more in some ways because of the faith traditions in which they uh, learn and grow? Well, I think it would be a little too glib to say that Protestants are under the grace and not under the law. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, but but I do take your point that that we do really come at it with a kind of a, you know, a, I, don't, I wouldn't want to say a different worldview completely, because I think that we all kind of in some ways spring, at least the Catholic, Jewish and Protestant traditions kind of spring from the same well. But, um, I you know, I, I think that's a really great point that that we do kind of have different intellectual traditions, um, if not exactly different worldviews. Well, Paul, let me move along here. Uh, One of the things that I really admire about Religion Unplugged is its international coverage. And uh, you had an international story that I wanted to talk about a little bit because I do think it relates – you know, not only to what's going on in the world, but a lot of Christian organizations, which of course we focus on a lot here in Ministry Watch, will, um, you know, will take trips. Sometimes it might be fundraisers with donors. It might be uh, uh, just a uh, organizations that are in the business of running trips to places like Israel. And the article that you guys published was that the World Tourism Organization estimates that about 330 million tourists normally visit the world's religious sites every year, but that's not happening this year. Right. Yeah. Our, our reporter uh, noted that, you know, so far about us, we've seen a 70% drop in passengers going through uh, checkpoints and uh, uh, at U.S. airports. And that's more than five times the decline seen during the six months following 9-11. And as you point out, um, a lot of people, when they travel, they love to see sites, and there's so many religious sites, you know, uh, cathedrals, castles, and 
so many other things. And, and, you know, so it's it's unfortunate that uh, people aren't able to visit those sites right now. Well, that's right. And not only do they visit the site sort of incidentally, I mean, hey, if I'm going to go to Paris, I may as well see a cathedral there. But they also specifically go on pilgrimages. I know I've been to Israel twice myself, and I went there specifically to see the religious sites. And of course, we, you know, not even open it up, sort of the whole um, you know, world of Islam, where they are required to uh, visit Mecca at least at least once in their lifetimes. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's really amazing how uh, pilgrimages and religious travel are such an important part of global travel. You know, one factoid that really jumped out at me about your story was that um, more than half of the operators of these tours believe that travel won't resume in any kind of real form until 2021. And now, I guess we're so late in 2020, that in and of itself shouldn't be uh, such a big surprise. But 26% said that it'll be in the first quarter of the year. 33% said it would resume in the second quarter of the year. So that's barely half, Paul. I guess that means that the rest <laughs> believe that it's going to happen even later in the year. These tour shutdowns, as you've already alluded, were... Um, uh, you know, have been lasting a long time, not like the 9-11 attacks, which shut down travel for a little bit, but then it pretty quickly resumed. Right. I mean, the longer we go along in the pandemic, we wonder about economic damage long term. And certainly that relates to, I mean, uh, you know, these sites, whether it's pilgrimages or cathedrals or um, other kinds of religious monuments, who's keeping them these sites up? And do they have the tourism revenue to maintain these sites that helps uh, maintain those sites? So yeah, unlike terrorism, um, in 2001, that just temporarily crippled travel, the coronavirus is a different animal. It's, you know, it's brought a standstill to religious tourism. And our reporter notes that this past June, just 5,800 people visited Israel, which is a huge decline from the previous year when there was 365,000 people who traveled to Israel during that same month. The Israel Hotels Asso Hotel Association estimated the pandemic will cost $1.16 in losses this year to the country's tourism industry. And you know what's interesting is our, our one of our writers from Jerusalem himself is a, is a you know journalist, but he also does uh, tour guiding on the side. And so people like him are suffering in this process and scrambling to figure out other ways to make a living. Yeah, well, Paul, I want to shift gears with you just a bit. Uh, you know, we here at Ministry Watch, to be perfectly frank, try to avoid politics, especially during this election season, unless it's a story that relates pretty directly to a Christian ministry. But I, I guess I can't resist uh, talking about a story that you guys have over at Religion Unplugged about the American Solidarity Party. Right. Yeah, the American Solidarity Party or the ASP is a third party or perhaps a fourth or fifth, depending on who's counting. I mean, I talked to a friend who went to vote the other day and told me there was 10 parties on uh, on the ballot, and including Kanye West's party. So American Solidarities is, is one of those. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, not just a third party, even though we sort of uh, glibly define them as a third party. But what's interesting to me about this party, especially it maybe relates to our conversation or our um, interest in religion, is that this party takes Christian ideas pretty seriously. It's a pro-life, pro-traditional marriage party, which I guess separates it from the Libertarian Party, which is conservative and small government on economic issues, but tends to also be pretty libertarian on, say, abortion and homosexuality as well. Uh, but 
the ASP, the American Solidarity Party, uh, also favors a fairly strong environmental program. So it's really unlike the libertarians, not afraid to say that the government does, in fact, have a role in these various uh, arenas or spheres of life. Right. Yeah. American Solidarity Party, as I understand it, is a parallel to European political parties uh, like the Christian Democrats Party. So like in Germany, Angela Merkel, the the, prime, uh, the, the chancellor, she is part of the CDU, we call it, or uh, in the south of Germany, there's the sister party, the CSU. But the, basically, it's driven by Christian ideas and principles, exactly as you just outlined. So the ASP is an American attempt at that kind of party. And so, um, you know, third parties have a hard time getting going in America. Uh, I personally would love to see more parties uh, and more diversity of ideas and platforms of parties. So, uh, you know, ASP, what we do know and what we learned from our reporter Tim Narazi on this piece was that this party was founded in 2011. It made it on the ballot back then in only once in 2016 in only one state, which was Colorado. But this time around, four years later, it's on the ballot in eight states. So to me, that's a positive sign that, you know, um, other ideas, other parties are finding a little more oxygen, a little more space. And I wonder if that will keep going. And when, when Election Day rolls around or after then, we'll see uh, how ASP does, uh, what, you know, percentage of the vote. I'm guessing it may be small, uh, but we'll see how they do. Well, that's right. It probably will be small. Uh but, you know, what's uh, especially interesting is that it could be a spoiler party uh, this time around. Um, the uh, you know, with with some of the battleground states being so close that a couple of percentage points here and there um, might make the difference and swing things from, you know, from either from Biden to Trump or Trump to Biden. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens and also to see if um, the uh, party, the ASP, can sort of capitalize on the momentum it's built from 2016 to 2020 and and uh, go into the future. You know, Paul, we've got to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about um, what Christians should know about journalism. Uh, you know, we often talk about what journalists should know about Christianity, but uh, you had an interesting article that sort of looked at it from another point of view, and also not just Christianity, but uh, what reporters, what they should know about reporters as well. I'm Warren Smith, and uh, this week my guest is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged. You're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast, and we'll be back after the short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com.
Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith with Ministry Watch. My guest this week, Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged. You know, Paul, both Ministry Watch and Religion Unplugged have done a ton of stories about COVID, many of them focusing on religious liberty controversies. But you had a story uh, up at Religion Unplugged that focuses on how churches have stepped into the brokenness, if you will, that COVID has created in many communities to actually help people. Right. Yeah. A reporter told us about public schools in Alaska's capital of Uno uh, that moved to virtual classes because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and some students were put in a dire learning situation. Yeah, they sure were. You know, Paul, I've I've actually lived in Alaska. I've not lived in Juneau, but uh, I've flown over it. I've waved at it. But <laughs> I've lived in other uh, cities in Alaska. And I got to tell you that the vast majority of the state doesn't even have cell phone reception, much less Internet connectivity. Right. So that's where the churches came in here in this instance. Uh, one of our contributors, Bobby Ross, he wrote about uh, that a number of these churches opened up their doors and their Wi-Fi networks to help uh, local uh kids, school kids. Yeah, the Juno Church of Christ, for example, one of the one of the churches that Bobby focused on, a hundred member congregation that was just a block away from the school it was serving. Yeah, so Bobby tells us that the church opened its annex building to provide Wi-Fi and tutoring for Glacier Valley students. Um, that happened four mornings per week. Uh, you know, six to ten children would connect to classes via Zoom and work on their assignments at this church. And uh, members of the congregation, he tells us, help students with their homework as well as arts and crafts and puzzles while the church fin uh, furnished bottled water and snacks to take care of those families and those children. Well, it's a really great story and, you know, an example, I think, of, of Christians running toward the brokenness of the world rather than trying to separate themselves from it and be a part of the solution. And uh, it, uh, there's a whole lot more to Bobby's really great story than uh, we're able to cover today, but you can go to Religion Unplugged and you can find that story. Uh, you know, Paul, I'd like to sort of widen our view just a little bit uh, and um, talk about one of the opinion pieces on your side. It's a story that I um, deeply resonated with, and I just wanted to kind of talk about it a little bit by Rob Vaughn, who is both a Christian and a television news anchor for a secular station in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. So Rob uh, sent us a note and and had become aware of our site and had a piece, an opinion column he wanted to uh, publish with us that just dealt into uh, how Christians can understand the media and how the media can understand Christians better and explained, you know, who he is and how he does his work. And I, um, I think that's an important question and conversation to wrestle with. And it's something that we do wrestle with both at uh, uh, the media project, the parent nonprofit uh, over religionunplugged.com, as well as my work as a a professor of journalism at the King's College in New York City uh, with my students and with journalism friends in New York City. I think it's a good question and uh, that we, we continue to talk about. And so I'm glad Rob wrote about it. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, a lot of times, though, that question is uh, framed in this way. And I don't think this is a bad way to frame it, which is that, you know, the, the mainstream media, they just don't understand Christians. They, they're they liberal. They don't have any, any Christian friends or any conservative friends. They're in this, you know, New York or Washington, D.C., bubble. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. In fact, uh, with Marvin Olasky, I wrote a book called Prodigal Press, which explored um, that idea in more than 350 pages. So I'm very sympathetic um, to that idea. 
But uh, what I liked about Rob's story is that uh, he basically turned the tables a little bit and said, you know what? There's a lot that Christians need to understand about journalism and how it works and how what we should expect uh, out of the journalism that we're consuming, how to consume it, and also that that journalists are kind of real people too. In fact, the first thing that he says in uh, this article is that news consumers, and he means us, need to be savvy. Right. I think that's, uh, yeah, an excellent point. Um one of the dangers is if we go through life trying to only read or hear from everybody who thinks and, and speaks exactly as we do, right? And that's the uh, called confirmation bias, that a lot of people, that's naturally what we kind of tend toward. Whereas uh, the idea of news, the idea of, of journalism that reports on objective you know, f- uh, facts and attempts to be neutral um, sometimes that makes us uncomfortable, and certainly the, uh, there is truth that there there is media bias that exists from the right and the left, and a lot of our mainstream media does tend to have a, a center left to leftward bias. And so, I think one of the things that Rob and, and others, and I think you and I think and talk about, is we need to, as people of faith, we need to read and watch broadly, not just one cable network, not just one online news site. But to distinguish between, uh, but to watch several, and then as we do that, and to read several publications, as we do that, um, pay careful attention to what is is the piece a opinion piece like Rob's column, or is it a feature story, or is it a straight news uh, report, and is it labeled correctly in that cat in those categories, and um, you know, then and then think about okay. Is there a bias that's present on this uh, network or in this publication? And is that labeled and presented correctly? Can I recognize that? Um, and so that's part of it. And it's actually, um, it's good to wade into different parts of the debate. It's good to think about a, 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 a news event happening in the world and to see it from a couple of different perspectives or lenses. And, you know, we can do that through our news reading uh, by being media literate and how we read news content. And being thoughtful about it, and we can also do that on social media. So, if we're, when you, when we're using Twitter, um, I think uh, I, I try to make a point to follow some people from different perspectives that I respect. People who I think are smart, who are people of faith, people who are Christians, some who are not. People who are from different ideological perspectives, and I actually like using some apps like uh, Nuzzle is one that I use that helps surface to me stories that my networks are talking about. And I tend to see them stories of interest from the left-leaning folks I follow and the right-leaning folks. But, you know, following a few sharp people, sharp minds on different parts of the political spectrum helps me and others, I think, become, uh, you know, a little bit more well-informed than I am when I'm not following those kinds of people. Yeah. You know, I'm guessing that, uh, Paul, you probably teach this to your kids at the at King's. I know I certainly learned it in journalism school, um, that that as a reporter, if sometimes, you know, we I see a story going in a particular direction. Um, I might, you know, the, the maybe the easiest sources to get your hands on and to quote in your story are all saying the same thing. I had a mentor tell me years ago to report against your bias or report against the flow of the story. That doesn't necessarily mean that 
that the alternative view is the true view or the correct view, but you ought to at least engage the best arguments of the other side and not just the worst arguments of the other side. And I think that that's um, kind of what you're suggesting with our, with reading broadly is that, uh, you know, it doesn't, just because you read, uh, you know, somebody who's not a Christian or who has a different uh, political ideology doesn't mean you agree with them, but you, we really do need to be challenged not by their worst arguments, which are typically the ones that get presented on, you know, conservative television, but we need to really engage the best arguments of the left or the best arguments of a secular society if we're going to have good answers for those arguments. Yeah, I, you know, I think there is a, uh, <clears throat> there's a temptation in, 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 in a debate going on in media right now, Warren, where some people are saying, well, there's not just two sides to a story, you know, and you don't just get both sides, so to speak. Uh, and, and some think, and I think there's two answers to that. Some people think, yeah, we let's just be one-sided. Let's just be on a topic like climate change. Some of my brethren in, in, in the media industry say there's no two sides anymore. Science says this, and that's what we're going to report, and we're going to ignore the other side. And there's a temptation to do that on other topics uh, that are more actually more important to people of faith. And to me, that's a dangerous road to go down because I partly agree that there isn't just two sides, but my answer is a, di a different road, which is, there's multiple sides, and um, and as you said, intellectual honesty by any person, a scientist, a, a structural engineer, and, and also a journalist involves trying to ascertain the facts. And, and to do that, sometimes you don't just talk to two people. You you obtain data. You uh, survey this, the, the story or the industry or whatever you're writing about from 360 degrees. And how do we do that? Talk to as many people, try to get as good information as possible to approach and arrive at like the most conclusive, um, the most convincing, the most um, factually based report that you can. And to me, that's what I try to teach my students. And that's what I try to uh, also challenge our team at Religion Unplugged to do. And you know what? Journalists are human. We, we sometimes do make mistakes. We don't always accomplish what we set out to do. Um, but I think if the goal and the attempt is there, we end up with a lot more knowledge in society. We end up with a lot better quality of information than what we had before. And it, I'm worried that, um, you know, I don't want us to lose the pillars of quality information and knowledge that journalists have brought to this country in the last, you know, 200 years. Well, that takes me to my second point. We can't, by the way, this article by Rob Vaughn is really excellent, and we can't uh, unpack it completely. But Rob does make another point that I do want to talk about just for a minute or two, and that is this idea that truth needs champions. And one of the things that Rob says in the article, um, or suggests in the article, and I'll say it plainly, is that one of the ironies of the modern media ecosystem is that it's a lot of Christians who are quick to label anything they don't like as fake news, when in fact, it might not be fake at all. It might be true. It might just be something that I don't like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I went to so many, I heard so many sermons growing up where pastors talked about uh, the the problem of relativism and the idea of you know if you feel if you know this to uh, uh, that that in the notion that the opposite of relativism is that there is objective truth and to me that perfectly aligns with the notion of of journalism the idea that we can um, you know maybe some truths are hard to ascertain or perfectly but there are a lot that are not that hard to ascertain <laughs> there are a lot of facts that we can nail down. 
and 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 report clearly. And I think so. Therefore, I think Christians need to champion that and not oppose it. And it is troubling to me if we see political leaders in our country or other countries that are attacking the press because they don't like uh, the facts that the press is reporting. Um, uh, and so we need a, a thriving and independent and even perhaps an, an aggressive press. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. Well, this article, um, uh, Paul, I could talk about all day long, but just a couple of really quick uh, pieces of advice that uh, your reporter, Rob Long, closes with. He says that uh, there are some things that we as Christians can do is that one is to call your local reporter, that if there's a uh, a story you don't like or if there's something a perspective that's missing from the story, uh, a lot of reporters would love to hear from you. And I know these days a lot of reporters have their email addresses and sometimes their phone numbers uh, in the paper itself or on the website. And um, the other thing that he says, and, and I'll leave it at this, is that we should be praying for journalists, uh, that uh, journalists are people too, <laughs> so to speak, and um, that uh, we should pray for them. And it, it changes our hearts and posture towards these people. But also, I don't know about you, Paul, but I believe prayer can actually have an impact on people. They can have an impact on journalists and uh, the way they see a story. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I like those points. I, I think they get to the issue of dignity. Um, and, and we need more dignity in the world, you know. Um, and, and so treating anybody, but in this case, so we're talking about journalists uh, as humans created in the image of God. Um, and d maybe if, if Christian readers or audiences are able to rise above cynicism, uh, be in touch in a civil manner with journalists, um, yeah, to pray for them. I think that's that's incredible. I think that's great advice. And you yeah, know, so do I. Yeah, and on, on your point too um, of of how do you communicate to reporters? Um, I really like that, and because I actually uh, got a grant and built a technology that allows that that it can be embedded in newsrooms on their digital news sites that allows people to have, give feedback in a, a new way to newsrooms, to editors and reporters. So, um, and that's actually, it's installed in 12 different news organizations right now. I've been talking about it at major conferences. We could revisit that at some point, but I, it just, I say that because it relates to, I think the work of <clears throat> the work of uh, journalists and those of us involved in startups around journalism or education in journalism, we're going through an evolution in this field. And, um, you know, Diverse people, including Christian people, need to be involved in that evolution, both as as uh, entrepreneurs, as journalists, and as audience members. And so I think, you know, this piece by Rob and our discussion of it, to me, really celebrates that, the idea of uh, what's, our, what's our duty here? What's our responsibility? How can we help rebuild uh, structures and flows of information that's so important for our communities, um, so important for our families? Well, that's exactly right, and I just hope that our listeners will remember to be civil the next time they want to criticize me whenever I've written an article about their favorite televangelist. So <laughs> with that, uh, Paul, I think we need to bring our time to a close here. Uh, but as I said earlier, I know um, that one of the things that I love about Religion Unplugged is your commitment to international coverage. And it's hard to do well. It's expensive. Uh, but you guys have kind of put a stake in the ground regarding international coverage. Um, can can you talk a little bit about your international reporting fund and um, how people could make a contribution to that? Absolutely. So yeah, doing good journalism costs money. 
We love being able to pay journalists, whether they're from the Democratic Republic of Congo or Romania, um, to pay them something for their work. And, you know, one example was we have a uh, incredible photojournalist who's from Romania and she travels different parts of the world and does when she sees a good religion story, she tells us what she found and asks if we can pay for it because someone needs to pay her to be able to do that kind of work and to pay for fuel or airplane ticket or, uh, you know, camera costs, etc. So uh, she did an awesome story on Orthodox Christians in Romania who uh, go diving, scuba diving to retrieve a cross that the bishop throws every year in this part of Romania. That's an example of the kind of international stories we're trying to show, visual stories, video stories, podcasts, interviews, and text-based, you know, magazine stories. And so um, we have, a, we, are, we always um, are uh, paying our writers, but we need to continue to raise money from readers and donors to be able to pay those writers. And so uh, they can, people can donate to that fund right on our website and it goes to our, our uh, accountants and we, we flag it as to our budget for our reporting and our uh, freelance uh, pitches that come in. And so you are funding directly the journalism that we do. And so we appreciate those who are helping us in that way and look forward to, uh, uh, to more friends who are able to sponsor us in that way. You bet. Well, Paul, listen, thanks again for being on uh, the podcast this week. Uh, thanks to the work that you do at, um, for, for the work that you do at Religion Unplugged. By the way, if you want to know more about uh, the International Reporting Fund or uh, read some of the stories that we talked about for Religion Unplugged, you can go, of course, to religionunplugged.com. To find out more about Ministry Watch and our approach to journalism, uh, of course, you can go to ministrywatch.com. A couple of housekeeping items before we go. I'm thankful uh, to all of you who have rated the podcast. Uh, It's real easy on your podcast app. Just scroll down to the end of the episodes, and you can just, with one touch, uh, rate us. It's it's real easy to do that. It's free, and it really does help us a lot because it gives um, search engines another reason to find us, and it's a way that— Uh, You can support the program without any financial contribution whatsoever. But, of course, if you do want to make a financial contribution, both Religion Unplugged and Ministry Watch are donor-supported. And as um, Paul just said, there's a way right on the front page of Religion Unplugged that uh, you can contribute to their international reporting fund. Also, you can contribute to Ministry Watch by going to the ministrywatch.com webpage and hitting the Donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. Here at Ministry Watch, we get database technical and editorial support uh, from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. Thanks to those on the Religion Unplugged team this week, Bobby Ross, Ken Vaughn, Megan Clark, and the rest of the Religion Unplugged staff for providing content for the conversation that you heard from Paul and me today. I'm Warren Smith, along with my co-host this week, Paul Gladder. You've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.